0: Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church, Mission Viejo campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. We are going to continue a conversation we began on Easter. If you need a Bible, let one of these finely dressed men and women know, and they will give you one. If you have a Bible normally, give it back to us if you would, so we can give it to somebody else. Let's go to the book of Revelation, and if you are new to the Bible, go to the last page and turn left, and you will find Revelation right before the table of weights and measures, which is always kind of a highlight in our Bible study together. Okay, does anyone know exactly? Oh, is mine is mine tore off? You gave me NLT, bro. This is so like 2010. Oh, thank you. This feels better. There's, all right, young lady, right here, blonde hair. How much does a talent weigh? 75 pounds. Okay, how long is a cubit, young man? 18 inches. Okay, he's suggest half a mile. A homer is what? Don't. (laughs) Homer is six bushels. Not that that cleared it up any. And a bath is six gallons. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you your table of weights and measures. Can we get an amen? Now flip. You were going to clap. I like it. (laughs) Flip one page to the left in the Divinely Blue Bible, and you will find Revelation 21. I would like to read it to you. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, and this has to be the best line in the New Testament. I am making everything new. Now, I grew up in a church. And uh, my understanding of what we will do forever consisted of disembodied souls floating on clouds, playing harps, uh, wandering along streets of gold and comparing mansion sizes. All right, that was my understanding of what we will do forever and where we will be forever. And thankfully... The Bible gives us a bit of a, a, a kind of a more epic picture of what it is we'll do and where it is we'll be. So, so the scriptures talk about two different like, stages. One stage is something called the intermediate state, right? It sounds incredibly compelling. And for those people who die before Jesus comes back, Paul writes, they are absent with the body and present with the Lord. So somehow their soul departs from their body and is consciously with Jesus, and and the Bible doesn't say anything about what exactly that's like. The, The Bible does spend a lot of time on what happens when Jesus returns. And if you remember last week, we were in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and then he says something, we didn't look at it, but he says something that's incredibly fascinating. He says that what God did in Jesus, he will do for the rest of creation. That the resurrection wasn't just the vindication of Jesus, but it was actually a foretaste of what's coming. And so what I wanted to look at was what exactly does that mean? Because if you're like me, your images of heaven aren't terribly compelling. So I would say, well, what do you think we'll do in heaven? It will be like an eternal church service, some will say. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a fan of church services but I haven't found one compelling enough to sit in for forever, right? And so it's kind of like, it's better than the other place, but I don't know. I mean, it just kind of sounds weird. And so so we want to look at the idea that the resurrection of Jesus, that there's something more going on. There's something that's tied in to this this new heavens and new earth because the scripture clearly teaches where we spend forever with God isn't up there, it's here. And I want to flesh out what that means. So to do that, I want to fire up some PowerPoint for you. Now, I happen to be certified in PowerPoint presentations. This is epic right here. Look at that. There are these words you can put on the screen. It's just staggering. Okay. Okay. Now, I know it's our first 11.30 service, and I know some of you were really embarrassed. You got here thinking there was an 11 o'clock service, and, but we can still be in a good mood together, can't we? And you'll still laugh at some really dumb attempts at humor, correct? I mean, we haven't changed. We're just meeting at a different time, right? In fact, for some of you, you were just showing up right now to the 11 o'clock service, and so this really shouldn't be too much of a... Okay, now that we've cleared that up, look at what, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 28, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of what? All things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, 12 disciples who followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones. So he talks about the renewal of all things. Look at Acts 3. Heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Or Colossians, Paul writes... For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, so Jesus talks about, and Paul and Peter, they each talk about the renewal, the restoration, and the reconciliation. And they use this phrase, all things. This does not mean, by the way, that every single human being that's ever existed uh, will come to Christ. What it means is that there is a cosmic... Part to the work of Jesus that we don't talk about much. There is something beyond the salvation of individual souls that was accomplished in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And that these are passages that hint at what Revelation is the fulfillment of, a a new heaven and a new earth. And notice, reconciliation, renewal, and restoration, those aren't words that connotate destroying something and starting again new. Instead, they mean taking something that exists and bringing it back to how it originally was. Would you agree with that? And so Jesus, Peter, and Paul each speak of something happening in the future, of a reconciliation, restoration, and renewal that will take place. The prophets also spoke of this. Go to the book of Isaiah, if you would. Peter talks about this was promised through the prophets long ago. Go to Isaiah chapter 65, and we want to look at one of those promises, page 610 in the inspired blue Bibles. Isaiah 65, verse 17. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. See, I will create what? New heavens. And a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. Now, God creates something called the Garden of Eden. Do you know what Eden means? Delight. So, the way the text reads, I will create Jerusalem to be an Eden. Okay, so. There's just this dangling like hint that what God is up to has to do with where he began the whole story. In fact, as you continue to read this, this, these are all reflections kind of out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He says, uh, I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more, right? That's exactly what Revelation said. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. These are very Jewish ways of expressing hyperbole or hyperbole for those of you that are a little pronunciationally challenged. This is a this is very Jewish way. Come on at 1130. I'm working up here. You know, I mean, I've been saving it in the tank for just this service. All right, the 8.30 folks, they were sleepy. The 10 o'clock folks, they thought they were cool and getting the best time. I say you, right here, right now, will meet Jesus more clearly than any other people ever. And I would like just a bit of expectancy. Oh, that's forced. I don't even know. (laughs) I don't know why I even went on that little tangent. Hyperbole, yes. Thank you very much. That was Hyperbole, right? That was embodying Hyperbole. (laughs) Verse 22. Oh, no, no. Go to verse 21. What will we do on this new earth, you ask? They will build houses and dwell in them, they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat, for as the days of a tree, so will the days be of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands, they will not labor in vain. In Genesis three, one of the curses of God is to curse work. And so there's this this image. See, when God creates Adam and Eve, he gives them work to do. Would you agree? right? Cultivate the earth, fill it, subdue it, rule over it, not strip mine it, pillage it, but care for it, steward it towards God honoring ends. See, God has always been looking for not just robots or puppets, but participants who love him and serve him, who did work. So it's not surprising that when we read about God bringing back this whole thing back to the way he Uh, created it, that you would read about a new earth full of people with resurrected bodies who will be doing originally what God intended people to be doing. Very human things. See, the floaty, ethereal images we have of harps and clouds, I mean, it just doesn't even come close. Imagine, if you will, the best parts of human life. And subtract from them every ounce of darkness and guilt and shame. Take away from them any sense of decay, any sense of their ending, any sense of you're not being fully able to enjoy them. Multiply that whole package by infinity because we'll be with Jesus face to face. And then maybe you get a fraction of a tiny little glimpse of what life is like. There are things you do on earth today where you lose all track of time, right? They're so enjoyable and you're so immersed in them. Time goes by and you have no idea where it went. I believe that is a bit of what heaven will feel like. You're immersed fully in a fully human experience and you just don't have a clue time's passing. So you won't be up there going, man, look, 10 million years has just gone by. You won't even be aware of a concept like 10 million years. It will just be an eternal series of nows where you're fully present, fully human, fully engaged in a good world, doing the things you love to do. Those are the images the New Testament paints. Resurrected bodies that do not decay, a renewed earth, and a God who dwells with his people it sounds a lot like Genesis one and two, the Garden of Eden, right? A God who walks with His people in the cool of the day, people that were free to work and enjoy and delight in each other, and in, in their God. And so I want to beat up a little bit on some of the floaty images we have of what we'll do forever. I want to go to first. Uh, let's go to Second Peter. We'll hit one more. If you don't know where that is, it's right after. I always oh, it's, it's right after first Peter. <laughs> Go to Second Peter. Now, Tim and Danny, the, you need to know these two right here have listened to all. This is the fourth time they've heard this. And would you agree with me that this is by far the best one? <laughs> Second Peter chapter three, page nine eighty five. And we'll start in verse 8 together. Hi, Amanda. But do not forget, this is Peter talking about uh, the return of Jesus. Do not forget, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return. As some of you understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So why has God delayed his return? Well, this is at least one reason. But the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now, in English, that sounds like, oh, okay, he's going to destroy everything and start over. That's not what this means in Greek. So get your pointer finger. And point at the word destroyed in verse 10. Okay? Point at that word. You're going to see the same word in verse 6. Go to verse 6. And here Peter is speaking of the flood. He says, By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Now, was the world destroyed? No. It was flooded. The word destroyed doesn't mean obliterated. It means refined. So what God did in the flood was remove the corrupting elements out of creation. And that's the image Peter is giving. In fact, if you are still skeptical, put your finger on the little phrase, laid bare. That is a Greek word uh, that is the root of our English word, eureka. Now, You might not know that word. Eureka is what people would shout when they discovered gold. And the word in Greek means to find something that was previously hidden. Do you see the picture that's being painted? Peter says, you have a world that's a very mixed bag. Do you agree? And there is coming a judgment that will correspond to the return of Christ. And what that judgment will do will be to wipe away... All that is corrupting, all that is not of God, all that is dark, all that is bad, all that is evil. So only good things are exposed. And again, the word laid bare means things that are hidden now, but will be manifest later. So the images of a judgment that comes and purifies all of creation. That is what Peter means. When he talks in verse 13, he says, Whoops, that's, am I right? Nope. Here we go. In verse 13, he says, But in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth. So the thread of the Bible. Isn't that God obliterates the thing and starts over? He restores something back, he reconciles it again, he renews it. Backwards, Isaiah talks about it will be like an Eden again. And people will enjoy the work of their hands and the fruit of their labor. And then Peter talks about a judgment that will come and literally like the flood cleanse the earth. That there will be a judgment that will cleanse the earth. And only that which is of God will still remain. And that is how a new heaven and a new earth will come about. Go back to Revelation 21. Ooh. I'd say this qualifies as good news. 1,004. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had gone away, had passed away, had been refined away. And there was no longer any sea. Now, to the Jewish mind, the sea was the place where evil spirits dwelt. So when Jesus calms the storm in the Gospels, he's actually declaring his power not over weather, but over the uh, the underworld where evil spirits were. Just, that's a little freebie. <laughs> so this is a Jewish way of saying there'll be nothing bad. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to where? Where does it go? To earth. Like a beautiful bride dressed for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying look god is now dwelling with people and he will dwell with them they will be his people god himself will be with them and be their god now listen this is so critical for you to understand the entire movement of the bible is not god's attempt to get us out of here it is god's joining us in here joining us here on earth it starts with adam and eve and God walking among the cool of the day in intimacy with them, right? Then in Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, everything's fractured. Human relationships are fractured. Human relationships with God. Human relationships even with creation itself. All of that is disrupted. It's decayed. Sin and death have tainted it. God moves then to restore And to renew and to reconcile, he calls a man named Abram. He says, follow me, I will make you into a nation. That nation we know is the nation of Israel. That nation, when it finds itself in slavery, God comes and says to that nation, I will rescue you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. The same phrase he uses in Revelation. He yanks them out of slavery, and then he says, I want to dwell among you. No other nation has a God live in their midst. And so, build me a tent called a tabernacle. And literally, there are like massive amounts of chapters in Exodus about how this thing should go. And, the, and Exodus ends with God dwelling among his people. Generations later, he brings them to the land he'd promised to give them. And he says, build me a temple. And so they build this temple, exact specifications, and then in 1 Kings chapter 8, he comes and he fills, his presence fills the temple. This is a God who keeps getting closer to his people. The Bible isn't a search of humanity's quest for God, it's a search of God's quest, or it's a record of God's quest for humanity. God keeps getting closer. In fact, in the book of John, and I keep getting closer to you, in in the book of John, John begins by describing Jesus as the divine logos, the divine ordering principle that gives meaning and intelligence to everything. And then he says this crazy, crazy thing. This God became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. It's like God saying, tent wasn't good enough, temple wasn't near enough, I will take human flesh and walk among you. But then, Jesus says the most ridiculous thing that Jesus ever says. He looks at his little band of followers on the night before he was betrayed, and he says, hey, by the way, it's for your good I'm leaving. Now, if you're one of his followers, you've seen him raise people from the dead, walk across the lake, you've seen him feed 5,000 folks and heal diseases, is it good news for you that he is leaving? Of course not. But Jesus says, "I actually is good that I'm leaving because I'm going to send my spirit, another comforter, who will not just live among you, but will live in you. The whole biblical story is of a God who keeps getting closer so that the New Testament writers, in full amazement of the implications, will say, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. That is ridiculous to a first century Jewish mind. That God would condescend to make his living in sinful human persons. Oh my goodness. So when you come to a passage in Revelation that talks about God dwelling with people forever. This is nothing new. It's been what he has been doing the whole time. The biblical hope of how things end is very similar to how things began. That God will collect for himself out of human history a people that he will dwell with forever. And as they dwell together, they will be given resurrected bodies And they will do very human things without any awareness. Time is passing forever. Now, the reason this matters so much is because the destination affects the journey. Would you agree? Like, I hate flying. Flying hates me. I am I am the poster boy from the dudes who want who give pat downs, where I don't know why, but I just shout like pat me down because I'm constantly, you know, pulled over into the special place of examination, and 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 the seats would you agree the seats are too small the peanuts aren't free you gotta I mean I'm trying to cram so much stuff into a little carry on that I'm literally, I'm literally thinking like it's survival of the fittest as we t- fight for carry-on space because I will not gate check this bag. I will not. And so I'm obscuring the number on my ticket when I hand it to her because I'm entering the queue before my number has been called, and I do not care. My, my bag will not be gate checked. And I sit, if I'm on a Southwest flight, I sit and I try to spill over into the other seat so that people will look at me and say, I will not sit next to that man. That man should sit alone. I hate flying. I hate it. The whole thing, I hate it. And I always find there's a difference between flying out somewhere and flying back. When I'm flying out somewhere, yeah, I mean, it's tolerable. But whenever I'm flying back, I have much more grace for the journey. Because I know what it's like when my wife pulls up in our sweet little minivan. <sighs> and there are three incredibly cute faces that will now begin to argue about who gets, next, who gets to sit next to daddy. And so literally what I do, the way, the way I get through plane flight sometimes is I put out a picture Of my family, and I just look at that saying, This is why I'm doing this. Now, similarly, so many of us have such a thin, watered down version of the destination that the journey is almost unbearable. Anything bad happens in the journey, we feel like it's so unfair. Like this is the life we have. This is this is supposed to be it. This is the pinnacle. This is I've got only eighty years or seventy years, and I've got to grab all of life. And it... and no wonder when you're thinking of clouds and harps and mansions, the biblical picture is a much better picture. I have a friend who uh, is in a wheelchair, and he. I've known him for 10 years. He was one of my college students when I was a college pastor. Sean, do you guys remember Sean Stewart? Anyway, multiple, uh, multiple disabilities. And whenever you talk about resurrected body, new heaven or new earth, that boy gets a gleam in his eye. And you'll ask him, what's the first thing you're gonna do? I, he says, am gonna run to Jesus. First thing. Now you can say, ah, that's just a fairy tale hope. You can say that's just a religious figment or that's just Hallmark kind of cliched storytelling. Or you can say that it is exactly that future guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. See, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just proof that he's God and it's not just a nice holiday that we celebrate once a year. It is the paradigm example of what God has promised to do for the rest of the world that is his. And that in the same way Jesus had a resurrected body, we have resurrected bodies. And in the same way Jesus ate with a resurrected body, we will eat with a resurrected body. And in the same way that Jesus, the body was physical, but the body was different. He wasn't immediately recognizable, and he can just kind of show up different places. All of those are just glimpses and whispers and faint echoes of the kind of reality that awaits those that are God's. And so we gather this morning... And we shouldn't be victims of government or victims of the secularization of culture. We should be the most hopeful people in the history of the world because we, biblically, are the people who stand as the advance guard for what God will do with everything else. Why are you restored so that you will be an agent of the restoration that's coming? Why are you reconciled? Well, Paul writes, you are then given the ministry of reconciliation so that you are an advanced foretaste of the reconciliation to come. Why are you renewed? So that you will be an agent of renewal in carpool, in class, doing laundry. See, we think our life is just ordinary and God wants us to do religious things. You so misunderstand what God wants. God wants you to understand that in your real life, doing real, ordinary human things, you stand as an agent, not just a beneficiary of his work. And that literally, the invitation for you is to learn how to live your real life with your real family and your real friends in all of its glory and of all of its ugliness as somebody who's tasted what's coming and who who bears witness, however faintly, to the fact that Jesus is in the process of making all things new. That sounds like something worth giving your life to. And that's what we want to be about in this place. So we thought we'd celebrate this morning by taking communion and saying bless you to that man who's newly engaged. Yep, now see him right there. His wife is beautiful, or his fiance has beautiful red hair. If you walk around her, she will just be doing this. She would just... Oh, do you see? Oh, the light is so bright. It just reflects off of this. Do you see what time it is here? She will just do that. What are we talking about? Communion. You were of no help to me right there. You were of no help. (laughs) So communion is multidimensional in the Bible. You take the bread, you take the cup, and one of the ways you do that is you look backwards. We reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus that has given us life. But Paul also talks about you look forward, you anticipate, you proclaim his death until Jesus returns, and it's that way I want to focus us this morning. If you're a disciple of Jesus, I want you to take the bread and the cup, and I want you to think and ask and pray for the hope that this represents, the anticipation that this represents, that you and I would begin to live with an expectancy, not just for someday, but even for today, that this risen Jesus will meet us in the ordinary mundane avenues of life and invite us to participate in the work of renewal. So I'm going to pray for us. And then if you would, if you're new to Jesus, new to church, not comfortable taking communion, don't. No one's going to care if you don't. We're going to pass trays of bread and trays of um, cups of juice. No one counts those at the end of the roast. All right, so no one's going to care. For those of you that want to participate this morning, take some bread, take a cup, and then hold it so we'll celebrate together. Make sense? So let me pray for us, and the ushers will come down as we continue to worship. Lord Jesus of Nazareth, We recognize that you are risen and that you are reigning and that you now sit at the right hand in a position of authority next to the Father. And you invite us to come to you and to bring sin and failure, mistakes, regrets, all of the junk and the darkness and the evil in our hearts and in this world to bring it before you to have it swallowed up by your work on the cross and to recognize that your resurrection then isn't just a nice figment we celebrate or a nice holiday every now and again, but it represents the first step in this whole new world you are creating. And Lord, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit as we take the bread and the cup that you would renew hope in us. Lord, many of us carry and labor under burdens that are very difficult to bear. And Lord, we want those burdens removed. And of course we pray in that way. But God, we also recognize you meet us in them and that it won't always be the way it is right now. And so God, would you, would you bring hope into this place and anticipation? So ushers, would you guys, would you guys come forward and uh, would you take the elements and hold on to them for just a moment? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.